I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Happy New Year. And in keeping with radical overhauls for early January, we've changed the release date of this podcast. It used to come out on a Thursday and now it's going to come out on a Tuesday. But beyond that, nothing else changes. We'll still be bringing you one investigation each week, reported by me and my colleagues in the Tortoise Newsroom. So to our first story of 2023, we're looking up, far up, all the way to the stars. For decades, NASA was at the cutting edge of space exploration, behind those giant leaps for mankind. But something has changed. In recent years, they've been outshone by private companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX. And as new contenders aim for Mars, NASA is stuck in a time warp, still aiming for the moon. They've spent tens of billions of dollars failing to do what SpaceX and other companies can do for a fraction of the price. And not only that, they're failing. So what's going on? This week on the Slow Newscast, my colleague Giles Wattell, a true space nerd, asks, is this the end of NASA as we know it? Liquid oxygen tank has been pressurized and the pressure is still building up. One minute, 45 seconds and counting. We have a vehicle weighing 6.2 million pounds on the pad. All third stage uh, propellants pressurized at this time as we come up on the 60 second mark on a flight to the moon. This is December the 21st, 1968, and that is the voice of Jack King at Launch Control, Kennedy Space Center. 60 seconds later, Apollo 8, precursor to Apollo 11, blasted off with three men aboard on a flawless six-day trip around the dark side of the moon. We have, we have liftoff. Liftoff at 7.51. Now get a load of this. This is Artemis Launch Control with an update. The hydrogen bleed was a goal of the previous wet dress rehearsal uh, that didn't happen due to a hydrogen leak, so uh, engineers are, are focused. That was launch control for Artemis 1, the biggest rocket ever. I was going to say ever launched, but it failed to get off the ground because of that hydrogen leak. That was on August the 29th, 2022, 54 years after Apollo 8. Artemis is the biggest rocket ever built. NASA says it'll take astronauts back to the moon and beyond. But a few weeks later, it failed again. This is Artemis Launch Control. Launch Director Charlie Blackwell Thompson just called uh, a scrub for the launch attempt today, the second launch attempt. Same problem, a problem that hadn't been a problem half a century earlier. For some people, it was all rather inevitable. I also felt pretty strongly it probably wouldn't launch and did not make the trip. 
For others, it was embarrassing. It is somewhat amazing. NASA has been dealing with hydrogen propellant since 1962. It was used on every shuttle flight. We do need to be fair here. Rockets have glitches. And Artemis did eventually blast off a couple of weeks ago. And here we go. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. But really? NASA tries to talk about Artemis in the same uplifting language it used about the Apollo program, or similar language updated for half a century later. With the Earth in the background and the moon is our destination, Artemis generation, we are going. Going to do awesome geology, to test a whole new generation of habitats and spacesuits and lunar rovers, going to live there. That's what the habitats are for. We are a nation of explorers. We have a generation... This is Gene Krantz, legend of Apollo 13, the one in the fancy waistcoats who tells Mission Control that NASA has never lost a man in space and sure as hell isn't going to lose one on his watch. During Apollo, we were on national TV literally every day because we were doing something visible that Americans could see and they could feel and say, look what we are doing. And I believe Artemis is going to come up and say, look what we are capable of and what we are doing now. Thanks, Gene. And I say that as a fan. But you and I know how carefully you chose your words there because you're right. Artemis does show what NASA is capable of and what it's doing now. And it's a mess. I'm Giles Wittell and this is Damn and Blast Off, How Not to Go Back to the Moon. A slow newscast from Tortoise. Artemis cannot actually get to the moon because the spacecraft it carries in its nose can't get down there or back up. It doesn't have the power. Artemis cannot claim to have explored new frontiers because its mission is basically a retread of Apollo 8's. And it can't test how the whole system works with humans aboard because there aren't any. Each Artemis launch costs $4 billion. None of them reuse any of their components and none will put people on the moon without the help of SpaceX, that scrappy startup run by the friendly new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk. He does reuse his components, so he can offer launches at 90 million a throw, less than a 40th the cost of an Artemis launch. Two, one, zero. Ignition and liftoff. Uh, that was as smooth as I'd seen it. Uh, we had phenomenal shots all the way through the landing burn. You heard the sonic booms. This booster has landed for the eighth time. Oh, and Musk's next rocket, currently being built in Texas, is designed to be entirely reusable and get to the moon and Mars all by itself. So here's what I want to know. Is NASA pointlessly sending people back to the moon with tech that isn't actually up to the job? even though more than half a century after the original moon landings, it ought to have nothing to prove? Here's a preliminary answer. Artemis is the future of NASA's human space exploration. And it's also the end of NASA as we know it. To understand how NASA got itself into the position of spending $4 billion of American taxpayers' money for every launch of a rocket that can't really go anywhere, you need to meet Laurie Garver. I 
have recently released a memoir titled Escaping Gravity, and I am a former deputy administrator of NASA. Before her retirement, she was the most senior female official in NASA's history. It was otherwise a pretty male world, as were the roots to its coveted jobs. I did not grow up wanting to be an astronaut or even feeling like I had a future career at NASA. The boys the same age often did, but I was from Michigan. I didn't have any family members who were engineers. I um, was discouraged as a woman, a girl in, in high school from even taking all of the science and math that I wanted to. I did have an aptitude for it, but ended up in a political science and economics undergraduate and graduate school. On the way there, she'd ignored her high school teachers and taken all the maths courses she could. Before my senior year, and senior year, when I came back that fall, there ha- I had been the only girl who had done that, but there had been five boys. And they had all been contacted over the summer by the school and offered to take calculus at the nearby university. So when my parents said, well, why wasn't Lori asked to do this? They were just very much open by saying we didn't know why a girl would want to take calculus. She says she doesn't regret being steered towards social sciences. It didn't prevent her being awed by space. Didn't stop her seeing the impact of the moment when halfway through Apollo 8, Bill Anders grabbed a Hasselblad camera and took the Earthrise picture that launched the modern environmental movement. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that's pretty. Hey, don't take that off schedule. <laughs> it didn't stop her wanting to join NASA. But it did mean she joined as an administrator, not an engineer, not obsessed with the machines NASA could build, but with what it could do for people. And those turned out to be very different things. As that became clear, she put up with a lot. In the 1980s, going into the aerospace industry, um, as a woman in her 20s, just, you know, it was like, most other things. If you're in a male-dominated profession and there's mainly men around, you're just going to be asked to get coffee. You're going to be presumed (laughs) to be the junior person in the room. You're going to get comments um, about your looks. And worse. Things things like my boss saying you're going to come in for your birthday spanking, um, being at a hotel in Moscow with an aerospace contractor who was overserved and barged into my hotel room. She fought him off. Despite the frat house culture, that's her description, she stayed in love with space, and after a spell outside NASA in reality TV, she came back to the agency as deputy administrator under President Obama, at a moment when NASA was at a crossroads. Yes, I remember it well. It was April 15th, 2010. Obama had been in the White House a little under a year. He knew his presidential history. He knew the galvanizing power of a clear, ambitious goal. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And he wanted to give NASA presidential leadership as Eisenhower and Kennedy had before. The question was, where to? 
the moon and Mars, at colossal expense with no clear scientific rationale, just for old times' sake? That's what a lot of people in Congress wanted, because it meant money for their constituents. And it's what the astronauts wanted too. They all wanted to be like Neil Armstrong. And it turns out one of them was in charge of NASA, Charles Bolden, ex-fighter pilot, the agency's first black astronaut, all-round national hero, and a back-to-the-moon guy to his fingertips. Obama, not so much. He liked the idea that NASA should be doing new things, things that no one else could do or had even tried. This was Laurie Garver's view too. In fact, she had been his chief space advisor during his 2008 presidential campaign. His thinking on space was essentially her thinking on space. So, April 2010, this is where things stood. In NASA's hallowed halls in Houston, astronaut types who want to recreate as closely as possible the glory that was Apollo. In Washington, at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue in the Capitol, congressional types who want jobs and contracts for their constituents. And at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue in the White House, progressive policy types who want what they think's best for America, and dare we say it, for humanity. They say leave old-fashioned rocketry and all those ticker tape parades to the private sector. Focus on new frontiers, deep space, remote sensing, climate change, and asteroids. The president had released his budget for the country and NASA a couple of months earlier. The congressional reaction had been, no, we're not going to do things that way. And in an attempt to help convince them that this was a good path for the agency, he came to the Kennedy Space Center. By that time, NASA had already started building the gigantic Artemis package and the Orion space capsule that was a key part of it. We gave a bit of a consolation to the uh, status quo people, said we would keep the capsule Orion in a streamlined mode, and said we would set a destination. They had been asking us why, you know, where is the next place astronauts will go? And so the president at that time said an asteroid. It was the only achievable goal within the budget and time frame allowed. Um, he gave a marvelous speech, I thought, and I I um, think the audience, as he very was an a wonderful speaker, was enthused at the time, and he did come right over to me afterwards, the administrator of NASA was on stage with him. So I was this senior person he's looking out and and he shook my hand and said, uh, do you think that will help? And I said to him immediately what came to mind, which was, if it doesn't, nothing will. And nothing did. Laurie Garver went to Houston and tried selling the Obama plan to the astronauts. You know, astronauts are not used to having people, even in their management chain on up, you know, disagree with them. And so I'm talking to them about, for instance, the president had said the asteroid goal would be the next goal. And they just would, they literally sat in front of me with their arms folded and said, we don't want to go to an asteroid. We don't care about that goal. We want to go to the moon or we want to go to Mars. They always want to go to Moon or Mars. And the 
animosity uh, was toward myself and the president. And I said, you know, it's not all about us. It's not about you or me. These are taxpayer dollars and these goals should be broader. Um, But it isn't like they were listening. Behind the scenes, the administrator, Charlie Bolden, Laurie's boss, had been working with Congress against the president on what he called Plan B. He wasn't interested in asteroids or unmanned probes or science, really. He wanted a straight rerun of the Apollo program, or the closest thing he could get to it. And so, in open defiance of the president, Plan B became Plan A, the Space Launch System. It's a huge rocket and two strap-on boosters to remind the public of the good old days. The rocket looked like the mighty Saturn V that launched Armstrong to the moon, the boosters recalled the space shuttle, and the whole thing was called Artemis because Artemis was Apollo's twin. One of Garver's earlier bosses had called the Space Launch System, SLS for short, a giant self-licking ice cream, a thing that existed for itself, for the gratification of its own people. Laurie Garver herself calls it an abomination. Instacart shoppers, no groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. So you you really have to go back to the space shuttle Columbia disaster when that vehicle broke up over Texas. Eric Berger is a space expert and author of a book on Elon Musk. If you want to understand how the giant self-licking ice cream really works, he says, you have to go back nearly 20 years. Columbia was coming back to Earth in early February of 2003. And as it was coming to land over Florida, it broke into pieces that fell back to the ground. And so it was a very wrenching moment the spaceflight community, especially here in Houston. I, I live near Johnson Space Center. And so a lot of the employees spent a week or so going up to East Texas and picking up pieces of the vehicle that had broken apart and in which seven people had died. That was in 2003, and the public's attention was firmly back on NASA. That spurred a real big rethink on what NASA's policy should be. And ultimately, President George um, W. Bush at the time said, we're going to go back to the moon. The question was, what in? And the answer was dictated mainly by a few big companies. The problem was that that the space shuttle vehicle was retiring. And NASA had facilities in, you know, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, Texas, and California that were all sort of major contributors to the space shuttle program. Um, So there's lots of jobs in those states, lots of influential contractors. And if you look at who got what, with the Space Launch System and Orion, which are the key components of the Orion, or excuse me, of the Artemis space program, 
those map almost one to one in terms of contractors getting the same business. So like the, there's this SLS rocket uses the same engines as the space shuttle program. So Aerojet was taken care of. The external fuel tank is the same diameter as the fuel tank um, on the SLS rocket, which is manufactured at Michoud in Alabama. Boeing, you know, kept its work going with the core stage. Lockheed Martin got work with Orion. Northrop Grumman is building solid rocket boosters that were built for the shuttle and now for the SLS rocket. So it was really a precise design from lawmakers to NASA to sort of, as I say, map those contractors one-to-one -to, -one to keep them whole going forward. And the abomination is really in the fact that we have now spent over $50 billion and 12 years, more if you include Orion, um, which started in 2006, doing something that the private sector has done on their own. You know, NASA last launched its own vehicle 11 years ago. And so this team is trying to come together and do this, but everyone else who's launching now is a private company, United Launch Alliance, um, SpaceX. NASA hasn't launched their own things in 11 years. And I understand that if you're a rocket scientist, you wanna build rockets. Well, NASA's about much more than the rocket and always has been. The trouble is Laurie Garver didn't win that argument and that bothers her. I have constantly questioned, you know, how could I have managed that transition better? How could I have conveyed the goals in a way that would have been more easily accepted by these people? Laurie Garver left NASA in 2013. Charlie Bolden stayed on until 2017 and sold Artemis to Donald Trump. The rest, in a sense, is history. Against the advice of Garver and Obama, NASA built Artemis. Last November, at long last, it took off, launching Orion into orbit around the moon. And as it began its journey home, the current NASA chief, Bill Nelson, eased into full triumphalist mode. Not only are we going farther and coming home faster, but Artemis is paving the way to live and work in deep space, in a hostile environment. By that time, the BBC's Laura Koonsberg had invited Howard Hugh, the Orion program manager onto her Sunday show. We are going back to the moon. We're working towards uh, a sustainable uh, uh, program. And this is the vehicle that will carry the people that will land us back on the moon again. And uh, Except that none of this is really true. At best, it's a verbal sleight of hand. Nothing about Artemis is sustainable. No part of it actually gets to the moon. It's years late. Billions over budget with no clear idea what it's for now because it can't do what it was originally meant to do nearly 20 years ago. To see why, I hope you'll allow a little rudimentary rocket science. Hi. I'm an astronautical engineer. I was uh, doing, uh, in the late 80s, preliminary design of interplanetary missions, um, including human missions to the Moon and Mars. Meet Robert Zubrin, an astronautical engineer who used to work for Martin Marietta, a big NASA contractor in the 1980s. 
SLS cannot deliver the Orion capsule to low lunar orbit with enough propellant to come home, let alone along with a lunar excursion module. So instead they say, well, we'll deliver it to high lunar orbit, which is where they're putting this space station known as a deep weight gateway. I call it the lunar toll booth. That's the lunar toll booth. Imagine a mini international space station bolted together 200,000 miles from Earth, circling around the moon. This is integral to the Artemis program for technical reasons that we'll get to, but it didn't have to be this way. NASA during Apollo had uh, a purpose-driven human spaceflight program. Purpose was not scientific, but it was sure purpose, geostrategic purpose to astonish the world with what free people could do, and thus it committed, Kennedy committed us to get to the moon before the decade was out, which is to say within eight years of his speech in 1961. And we did exactly that. With, it must be said, a remarkable piece of hardware. During Apollo, we designed the lander and the capsule and the booster all together. It was a complete coherent set. Okay, this program is completely incoherent. The capsule has been designed separately from the booster and there is no lander. So uh, it's not a program. How did it come to this? Zubrin's job title nowadays is president of the Mars Society. He wants to go to Mars, and as it happens, his plan to get there has been adopted pretty much in its entirety by Elon Musk. But he looks back as well as forwards. He looks back fondly, reverently even, on Apollo. And he says NASA's present Artemis funk is partly about attitude, about what NASA's people bring to work in terms of passion. Look, I have friends in Houston, and they tell me they drive past JSC on Saturday and the parking lot's empty. That's the Johnson Space Center, Mission Control. Now, that was not the case during Apollo. The parking lot was never empty uh, because the place was a busy beehive. They were going full bore. So now we have a space agency treating space exploration like a nine-to-five and getting things wrong, forgetting how to fill fuel tanks with liquid hydrogen. And, and this is where we get to the technical stuff, forgetting other things too, like how to build an engine. The rocket on which the Artemis is based was conceived 34 years ago when Zubrin had a ringside seat at Martin Marietta. It was designed, he says, as follows. That it would have uh, three or four space shuttle main engines at the bottom of the external tank, which contains the hydrogen and oxygen, have the two solid strap-ons. And then on top of that, it would have an upper stage. And you wanted to have, for various technical reasons, an upper stage with about uh, 250,000 pounds of thrust or more on that. Now, 250,000 pounds was, give or take, the thrust of the legendary J-2 engine used on the Saturn V rocket that lifted all the Apollo missions into orbit round the Earth. So we specified the upper stage user J-2. It's an engine that we used during Apollo. And uh, the J-2 was actually not in production anymore by the late 80s. But we said, OK, just, you know, you've got the blueprints. Rebuild it. Let's do it. Uh, and uh, NASA actually proved unable to re-engineer an engine that had been initially designed. It was advanced technology in the 60s, but it was proven. It was used on many flights. Uh, uh, the um, Every Saturn V used six of them, five on the second stage and one on the third stage, and they couldn't do it. It's worth pausing here. 
When NASA started building a big new rocket to replace the shuttle, it tried to rebuild the engine used on the original moon rockets, and it couldn't remember how. These were complicated pieces of equipment. You can see how complicated at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington and the Science Museum in London. But still, to unlearn something so substantial so quickly is some feat. Anyway, instead, NASA used a smaller engine. They took another old engine, but one which is still in production, the RL-10. Now, RL-10 is only about 16,000 pounds of thrust. It's a much smaller engine than a J-2. Fine little engine. Are you following? I'm sure you're way ahead of me. The challenge is to get enough thrust in the upper stage, the second stage of the main Artemis rocket, to enable it to deliver its payload, which is the Orion spacecraft containing NASA's next moon-bound astronaut crew, into orbit round the moon. And they put five of them on there. That's five RL-10s, each with 15,000 pounds of thrust. So it has 90,000 pounds of thrust in its upper stage, and that is not enough. Not enough to get down to and back from low lunar orbit, which is where the Apollo missions paused for breath and transferred their astronauts into their lunar modules. Not even close. In fact, with these five RL-10 engines, the upper stage of the main Artemis rocket is three times the weight of the upper stage of the Saturn V, with one-third the power. Imagine two couples that want to have a dream house, okay? And the first couple, they sit down, they discuss it informally, come up with general vision of what they're looking for. Then they bring in an architect and they sit down together and he draws things, sketches out until he finally comes up with the plan they want. And then they call in the construction firm. They say, here's the plan, build this, okay? That's Apollo, okay? Compare that to a couple B, which wants to have a dream house, but the way they proceed is they just drive around to garage sales every weekend and they buy things that strike their fancy. So maybe a spiral staircase, some aluminum siding, uh, a fountain with a statue of Napoleon in the middle, and they accumulate all this junk and put it in the backyard. And then one day the in-laws come for a visit and you know father-in-law sees all this junk piled up in their backyard and he says why do you have all this junk in your backyard and I say oh well this is parts for our dream house and he looks at this bizarre collection of stuff and says show me the plan for this house so uh, they say oh we'll do that and so they call in an architect and they say look we need you to design a house and it has to include all of these parts that's Artemis Zubrin's preferred metaphor for the Artemis program is, to put it politely, a garage sale. Which is why the solution NASA has had to adopt is to pause the whole mission in high lunar orbit, phone SpaceX, and ask for help. Three, two, one, ignition. We have liftoff. It is, it is going! Yes! Yes! Oh! Yes! There's a new flight record right there, my friends! Those are some of the sounds of Boca Chica. This town used to be a birdwatcher's paradise on the Gulf of Mexico. Not anymore. It's the place where SpaceX is reinventing spaceflight, and Eric Berger's been there. 
SpaceX does not do anything timidly, and they have massively transformed this sleepy area down by the Rio Grande River, so the southern end of Texas, just north of Mexico, and built a Starship facility, um, a, a modern-day spaceport, out of nothing on these, these flatlands. 24 hours a day, SpaceX workers at Boca Chica are bending metal, testing rocket engines, and running test launches of those Starships that Eric Berger mentioned. Like a lot of what Elon Musk does, they're meant to evoke science fiction, but there's nothing fictional about them. They're stainless steel, they're very big, very heavy, and unlike anything NASA has ever built. Where NASA's adrift, or so its critics say, SpaceX knows exactly what it's doing. These are the spacecraft on which it will take humanity to Mars. So if people can recall the Apollo rocket, so the Saturn V rocket that took humans to the moon in the 1960s, 1970s, huge white and black vehicle taking off with this thunderous of, of, of smoke and fire and, and kicking up dust. And if you look at the top of that vehicle, there was the Apollo capsule, right? And that's where the three astronauts sat during launch. And they went up and around the moon and came back. And then just that little, you know, 1% or less than 1% of the vehicle came back, splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, and then they put the Apollo capsule in the museums, okay? Everything was expended, okay? Nothing was reused. What SpaceX is trying to do is build a rocket larger and more powerful than the Saturn V launch vehicle that is entirely reusable. So that is the first stage launches it goes up, it boosts the second stage onto an orbit, then that first stage comes back and lands, perhaps at the launch site, perhaps somewhere else. And then Starship goes up into orbit, flies around, and then eventually comes back and lands. And then it's stacked by the launch tower back on top of the booster and is designed to fly again in a week or even less. Say what you like about Elon Musk, but no one is betting against his Starship. NASA certainly isn't. The pattern with his smaller rockets is that he keeps test launching them till they work every time. And that means going up and coming down. It's cool stuff. I, I, will, tell, I, will, just, I will just tell you that for me, the most amazing thing I've seen in my lifetime, or the moment that I felt like I was actually living in the future was when they landed on a boat for the first time in April of, of 2016. That just looked like you saw a rocket fall out of the sky, slow down, hover, and then set down on a, on a small automated drone ship in the middle of the ocean. I mean, come on. And now, before SpaceX goes to Mars, NASA is depending on its Starship to get its astronauts back to the moon. The plan is for a Starship to rendezvous in lunar orbit with Orion, the spacecraft launched by Artemis, at that lunar toll booth that Robert Zubrin was talking about and then give its crew a ride down to the moon and back because Orion can't. You might ask why SpaceX doesn't just take NASA's astronauts all the way from Earth. Well, the answer is that having spent so much time and money on the Artemis program, NASA has to do something with it. But still. You're going to have this really weird scene of astronauts getting out of this tiny Orion spacecraft and climbing into this massive Starship vehicle going down on the moon and coming back up. So this is a story that goes like this. Artemis is cruising back from lunar orbit as we record this. It would be churlish to deny this is some sort of accomplishment, but it's taken 16 years and at least $20 billion to build a salad of old rocket parts, to do something done before half a century ago. And in fact, not to do it. Because Orion is overweight 
and underpowered, leaving NASA reliant on SpaceX, which can already launch cargoes to Earth orbit for a fraction of the price of NASA, because it reuses its rockets. And NASA doesn't. And in fact has never even tried. The space shuttle, remember, was a glider. Its boosters, like the Apollo boosters, all ended up in the ocean. And no one seems to care. In Congress, or most of the media, where NASA's line that it's going back to what it's good at is swallowed uncritically, even though the reverse is true. It's pretending to go back to what it used to be good at. And so, in a way, NASA has ended up doing what Laurie Garver recommended all along, leaving key elements of America's return to human space exploration to the commercial sector. But it's only doing that having tried everything else first at vast public expense. Congress is happy, the contractors are happy, the fast fashionistas who've decided they like NASA's retro logos, they seem pretty happy too, but the space nerds aren't. Well, I guess that's democracy for you. There are two consolations. America, broadly defined, is still likely to get to Mars before China and Russia, thanks mainly to Elon Musk. And NASA's heroes, its rocket jocks, are capable, some of them anyway, of admitting they were wrong, admitting that NASA should have outsourced its astronauts in spacesuits business years ago. Well, lots of them have changed their tune publicly. Many of them have gone to work for these companies, um, and a handful have said that my reasoning at the time was instrumental to them really being on this path. So yeah, it's been super rewarding. And there's a lot of older engineers who've come up to me and just I had this one older gentleman give me a hug at an event not too long ago and say, I just thought you were so wrong. And I was the one who was wrong. Um, I mean, it happens. Did she go to the launch of Artemis? I um, was invited by NASA to attend the launches at their VIP viewing site where I've watched so many launches before. And so that was, I think, very generous of them. And I declined, which I think was also generous of me that I'm not, not the person they need to be seeing when they're celebrating or what they hope to be celebrating. They're celebrating how not to go back to the moon. Everything about Artemis is half-baked, mix and match, slow, uncertain, and massively expensive. SpaceX's Starship is all-in, purpose-built, fast, confident, and by space standards, very cheap. Not long from now, it'll pass its tests, and Elon Musk will be sending out invitations to the biggest space launch since Neil Armstrong's in 1969. Laurie Garver should be on the list. If she's smart, she'll accept. This story was reported by me, Giles Wittell, and produced by Patricia Clark. The sound design was by Tom Kinsella. The editor was Basha Cummings. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our stories, you like our investigations, and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 5-0. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.
I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.